This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm Brian Alexander of brianalexander.org. And we're going to talk about A Voyage to Arcturus by David Lindsay, a 1920 novel uh, that I heard or read was originally titled, uh, what was it? Knights, Knights Four of Tormorants, which really would put a different spin on the book totally, uh, at least starting, starting it would, don't yeah, you that, think? That would, that, oh, we've had this discussion, Jesse. This, that would spoil the book right off if you had that. Spoil. I don't know. I don't know. It, uh, apparently, it was a uh, fifteen thousand words longer as well when he was submitted it under that name. But the publisher, we don't have that missing fifteen thousand words. But uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it certainly colored the way you would read it. But I don't know if uh, it's very. This is a, a really weird book. I kept trying to describe it to people. It's like it's a really weird book. Last night, but, we were, uh, my wife and I were walking home, and it was it was dark, and we were walking in the uh, alongside a forest. And I was thinking, ah, you know, it's like torments. And I was trying to explain the book to my wife, and it wasn't going anywhere. I said, it's no, like William Blake meets Gene Wolfe, but Scottish. Yeah. And, uh, and she gave me a look, and I said, all right, well, it's accurate. Just trust me on that. But uh, I, I described it as H.G. Uh, Wells. In the 1960s, taking acid. Oh yeah. And here, <laughs> and here, I thought it was John Bunyan meets mm. science fiction. Because I, as I keep going through, I keep thinking this is like Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's got a lot of weird stuff going on. Um, I mean, the whole after after they leave the Earth, um, if they ever actually, in fact, do leave the Earth, and after they leave the Earth. <laughs> Um, it gets really trippy, but I went back and re-listened to the first five chapters, which are the ones before they leave the Earth, mm-hmm. and they are, I, they're amazingly awesome and interesting. Every, after, after a certain point, every line is, is completely full of multiple reson- resonances, mm-hmm. just like echoing, echoing, echoing of future echoes, and you know, people are describing this as a fantasy novel or, you know, a quasi-science fiction philosophy book. I think that the best way to describe it is it's it's a time travel book. It's a time loop book, except instead of being, you know, like one guy going going back and forth in in time, you know, like a Heinlein, you know, all you zombies sort of story. Right. It's it's a sort of a Buddhist uh, reincarnation. Uh, time travel story. Uh, and I, I got the sense that everybody at that party, at the initial party, shows up later on Tormorants. And also, they're all the same person. <laughs> they're all like a shared recycled soul. Because even, like, I, I, you know, after a certain point in the book, you know, you, you, you say, that guy is this guy. They're the same guy. But then Craig is also the same dude, I think. I yeah. think Crack is the same guy as all of these. That's Maskell, right? Well, he's Surter, and he's also Shaping. Right. So they like Shaping. You really have to wonder. But I, I would, I would take issue with one thing you said, which is that I don't think this is Buddhist. I think Buddhism is examined. No. Um, it's, yeah. No, it's not Buddhist. It's, it's its own thing. But it's it, like if you're describing it to people. On the street, you know, say what's what's this book, or you know, describe it on the back. This is a, it's it's somebody who's he's developed his own sort of system. <laughs> I think it's it's really closest to the Gnostics. Yeah, that's that's the way I found it too. I I had to reread the ending about I don't know seven times. The first time I read this, it was on an airplane, which is <laughs> like the best or worst place to read this. You know, it was just getting, yeah. you know, but um, but you get this um. You know, the strong sense that Crystal Man is kind of like the, you know, this evil spirit who occupies the universe and is screwing up everything badly for his own pleasure. And it's like, you know, the universe is occupied by this terrifying demigod. 
Um, and we can't get past it. All we can do is try and fight somehow. Mm-hmm. And that's a, it's a pretty, uh, breathtaking thing. This really, you know, we haven't mentioned, uh, other people, but this really reminds me of later Philip K. Dick, the, uh, Valis Quartet. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, I, it, it made me think of my, my favorite of his too, the, uh, the Galactic Pot Healer book, because, it's about a journey to another star. A guy, you know, sort of leaves the Earth, goes on a journey to the other star, and and has to, uh, you know, help this alien god. Do do. It's sort of like a really happy, <laughs> happy comedic version of this story. Um, this is this is much more. It's it's almost like the epic of Gilgamesh in its sort of primalness. Yes. Compared to that, but it it's a profound, very profound disturbing book and i really dig it yeah i i get more and more disturbed the more i i reflect on it and i mean in part because uh oh gosh well one is the the, the death toll is so is so intense there's murders and suicides all over the place i was not and expecting the same, yeah expecting such death um how, how many times does maskell himself die Right, just uh, be, uh, and then you know he's alive again. It seems like endless. Well, they could go ahead, Byron. Well, I was going to say, it, it in part reminds me kind of of uh, of the Odyssey, the way uh, everyone mm-hmm. who sails with uh, Odysseus gets killed. You know, it's Probably. like the worst job ever to sail with Odysseus. You know, um, and and, and it, but, in, but one of the differences here is that Maskell kills people. I mean, he's he's a uh, from the beginning, murder, yeah. he's this incredibly enraged, uh, freebooting guy. I mean, he's like one half Conan, you know, who just, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, the, you're, you're saying that the first four chapters are like a completely different novel. Um, they're really, you know, they're on Earth for one thing, but you get the, the pretty detailed setup of all these characters we never see again. We get the, the drawing room, the, the whole seance world, and then mm-hmm. you just chuck that. You know, we leave. Um, but he, even there, he, he stands out as someone who's, uh, energetic, furious, uncon- uncontrolled, and, uh, well, what Paul, what you were saying about, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, it's, it's very similar. You know, we get, uh, you know, our hero who gets, uh, who leaves town, um, because it's not enough for him. Right, and he goes, and he goes through a journey and goes through these different philosophies, meets these characters, and eventually comes to self-knowledge in the end that he's these, this other half, this, he's, he's Night Spore. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and in realizing that he has been Night Spore all along and really just a fraction of Night Spore, and he, Night Spore really just, just sparks of, that have been captured by this demiurge. There's the word we should be looking for for uh, mm-hmm. for Crystal yep. Demiurge. Yeah, that that's that's his uh, coming to uh, to knowledge of himself. So he kill he kills and rampages his way across Arcturus to to uh, become a become self aware of himself. I, 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 as I was going along, as I was thinking. You were mentioning earlier, Jesse, about the time travel. I was thinking, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe the events are contemporaneous. And I was wondering, maybe he got thrown a little bit back in the past because at one point we, he, uh, he goes on that vision thing and he winds up being the body that we see mm-hmm. back at the beginning at the totally. Theod. So, so, the, so the events, in, the events on Arcturus happened. He actually time traveled back in time as well as space so that that can match up, or is he time traveling back to that seance? There's time travel either way. It could, it doesn't maybe even really matter which way it was, but, but either way, there's a time travel element to one of their journeys. Well, it's also, it's also myth. There's this, there's this theory that, uh, mythic time is a different time from chronological or historical time, that it, it's always happening. It's always ongoing. You know, Christ yeah, is yeah. always being crucified. Uh, Gilgamesh is always going down to the underworld, you know, it's, it's always going on. And, and so this struggle, this, uh, you know, Moscow coming to awareness, um, and, and Nightspore's continuing pursuit of, of liberation from Crystal Man, that's, that's just perpetually happening. Uh, I mean, it ends on that, on that point of, of process when, uh, 
How does it go? The uh, when Nightspore and um, Crag say you're stronger. No, you're stronger. I mean, it's um, mm-hmm. it's uncertain how it'll go, but they go right back to it and resume. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to point out the really cool thing that happens in in that séance. You know, they first of all the uh, you guys watched the movie? Did you? I did. Uh, Only a little. Uh, it's it's weird. <laughs> it's, a black and white. it's it's very low budget. There's no third arms. Uh there's no, you know, third eyes. But um w- w- one of the things they did uh was they did the séance scene pretty well. It's very sort of compressed. There's no music. Uh you know, it's 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 not a rich man's house like it is in in the in the book, but they they do a nice job with the um with the seance, I think. Uh, and then, uh, what I was realizing is it, it, it it's very faithful as well. Pretty faithful anyways, for uh, something. It, it, it was uh, filmed in 71. So it, you know, a mascal comes with very long hair. I, I noticed, <laughs> I, I have a note here, hippie hair on mascal. Yeah. And then I think, uh, Craig says, Mr. Hair when he shows up, right. <laughs> Instead of calling him, uh, you know, <laughs> Maskell. But uh, one of the things that happens in the, both the book and in the movie, but more importantly in the book, um, the, the guy conducting the seance, I don't know, the medium or something, uh, they, uh, Maskell and uh, Nightspore haven't arrived. They're late. Uh, they're expected to show up before the nine o'clock uh, materialization. And then so Backhouse says, ladies and gentlemen, you're about to witness a materialization. And he says, I don't know what's going on, but it's about to happen. And then it says, he resumed his seat, half turning his back on the assembly and paused for a moment before be- beginning the task. And it says, it was precisely at this minute that the manservant opened the door and announced in a distinct voice, Mr. Maskell and Mr. Nightspore. Or Mr. Maskell, Mr. Nightspore, as if they were one Person. I didn't catch that. Yeah, isn't that clever? It's like, dude, this guy went back after you know, presumably writing the whole you know journey to Tormorans, and he injected so much resonance in those first few chapters that they they feel very dreamlike and strange as you're reading them. But everything that Nightspore says and everything that Nightspore does shows. That he is not uh, the same experience level as Maskell. Maskell's sort of ignorant of everything, almost everything, anyways. And then Crag is even more experienced than Nightspore, right? He's, but they're all the same dude, and it's like they've cycled through, right? It's Maskell is the first cycle, or something like the first cycle. And Nightspore is the second cycle, and Crag is like the third cycle, or something, something like that. And it's so weird that that's so clever, and you don't pick that up the first time through. No, I, I, I now now I want to reread this very strange and pick up on those resonances. That kind of reminds me a little bit of time travel stories where you have two versions of the same character running in the same. But one doesn't know the other, like say, all you oh, zombies yeah. by Heinlein, right. for example. Yeah, there's a there's another one that's even better. Uh, by his bootstraps. By his bootstraps. Yep. That's that's yeah. Um, have have either of you seen the movie Predestination? No. Yeah, that's by his bootstraps uh, as a movie, right? Uh, it's no, it's really more all you all you zombies, but all all you zombies. Yeah. Sorry, yes. Have you seen it, Brian? No. Is it good? It is very good. It, has, it just came out this year, yeah, I think. It has Ethan Hawke basically uh, working as a time agent, and it's basically the all you zombies story, but with a couple extra wrinkles to it. It's the most, not that there's that many, but it's the most faithful Heinlein movie ever made. And, and there's so much uh, of the gender stuff that's in that story as well. Like, you know, he's his own grandma and his own grandpa. Yeah. Uh, sort of thing going on, and I can't believe they kept it, right? That that's, I guess it sort of couldn't have come out in the eighties. People wouldn't have gone for it, but um, this book has that too. I, I, yeah. it's a lot about gender and 
you know, there's lots of lines later on about how, you know, if you're when you're being born, you're it's a fight between you and your and your female your self, yeah, female self or your female self and your male self, and and then the the story of the third uh, the third gender, um, and then what's funny is that you know we we talk about how the uh, the seance is later shows up in the book as well. Well, actually, the story of the moon flash, uh, not moon flash. What oh, is it? The womb flash. Womb- Womb flash. Uh, that story comes up twice as well. Right, right. Because we 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 get it in uh in the story of uh what's what's his name tells tells the story. It's another version of Maskell, right? Joy Joy he, Wynn's, he's, hus- he's Joy Wynn's husband. Yeah. Joy Joy Wynn's husband is all Panaway. Um. Panaway, yeah. Panaway is Maskell. I didn't catch that, but. I think I think everybody's masculine, really. I think this is sort of a story about about you know the human experience, not just like uh, because well, means everyone fights for. Yeah, well, um, one of the one of the ways exactly one of the thing people read the name masculine. I I was thinking at first it was um, man skull, right? Right. And sort of, uh, but actually, I think the best reading is mask all. Huh. Uh, yeah, because yeah, because because everything's masked to him. He he's wearing he's wearing masks and he, he masks all right. He he's all of us. We're all on this journey. If and that is really profound. This book. If you're if you're it's like a religious text, right? Oh it's oh, def- oh definitely. If if you follow this and you're following the whole story about the the male and female self and their struggles. Now now I'm I'm thinking aloud as you're talking about this. Um. That would explain his physical conflicts with the women that we see, hmm. Osiax, for example. And we also yeah. see, uh, what, what's her name? Um, Joy Wind? Not Joy Wind, um, the other one. The, the later one. Solonode. Solonode dies for him. Mm-hmm. And consider, um, Panaway talks about his female self was stronger than him, but her, his female self sacrificed for him. Get it? Mm-hmm. So I think you got something here. That everybody in this book is Maskell's male self or his female self. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, they're all spo- There's a another resonance that I I thought about after watching the movie um, and reading the Wikipedia summary chapter summary is very very little of what happens in each chapter is is uh, touched on. But I noticed um, when the i think it's chapter 4 they they go to the with starkness is the name of the observatory right yeah. yeah and they go there notice that there's no telescopes at the observatory they go there they have to break in right everything is rotten right falling right. apart and whenever i think of uh, after reading a hp lovecraft story called the crawling chaos ever since then uh, a house and i guess uh, obviously the fall of the house of usher House is a symbol for the body, right? Mm-hmm. They break into the house and inhabit the house like like ghosts, right? Everything's dead. They they see the impressions in the beds. Uh, Maskell says, "Hey, what? Why are those? Uh, you know, why is this all this way? What was this for? Is this for the workers at the observatory?" And he says, "No, I think it's for travelers like us." Um, and it's like, yeah, well, the the last ones through were them. <laughs> Right in the previous existence, and then they leave the house, go to the observatory, and Maskell tries to climb up. Right, right, um, and he can't. Um, and he says it was like he was uh, had three times the gravity. Right, um, because of course he's he's got three times the things. <laughs> he's got he's three guys. Go- he's carrying three guys going up. Um, but uh, then, uh, but. Uh, but but then look at this. This is the really, really weird, cool part. Um, uh, Craig finally shows up and he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Uh, you're going to roll down your sleeve. And he says this to both of them, uh, to, to Nightspell, oh, Night, Nightspell, Nightspore and Maskell. Roll, roll up your sleeve. Um, and he cuts their arms like, like jagged cuts. 
And, he, and they're like, dude, that doesn't, like, I don't think there's a good plan. <laughs> and then he spits on their wounds and says, you'll be fine, just roll down your sleeve, right? You'll be fine. And then they go up to the top and look out or go off. This is a suicide story, too, right? This is like they cut their arms up and they get all lightheaded. Yeah. And they feel it's much easier to climb to the top. They're not afraid of suicide anymore, right? Or as, they're less afraid of suicide after getting drunk as well. And then the uh, subsequent journey is, yeah, it's like, it's, wow. I'm, and then later, as soon as he meets Joywind, what'd she say? Here, let's just cut your arm a bit and let your blood come out and then you'll feel much lighter. Exchange blood, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. Just change it from well, my blood. Well, so much lighter. Well, we'll also think of the whole blood brothers sort of thing, which That's again goes cool. ties into the role of the same person. Yeah, it's also an exchange of bodily fluids, so you get the quick sex right away. Uh, That's true. But the the spitting, I, I love that Crag. He spits on the flesh, spits on the blood. Forget about that body stuff. You don't need that. We'll live as you know ethereal beings, That's just spirits. That shows up in Steven Universe, by the way. Oh, does it? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. But the um, but don't forget they also uh, they they drain their blood, then they drink a lot, and and mm-hmm. has already been boozing up. Remember, uh, mm-hmm. and then they get naked and wrestle. That's right. I was reading rereading that, and it's like the what David Lindsay calls it horseplay, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's matter play later on, but um, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, 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 this book is profoundly about like very. I mean, it's very 1960s, don't you think? Like the the sex. It's 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 like a. Uh, it's what's that Heinlein book, right? It's all about sex. Um, well, I will wait, feel. No, all about, I will feel no feel no fear no evil. Yeah, there's that one, but also oh, the oh yeah, oh yeah, stranger, strange right? Yeah, every Heinlein book after 1960 or so. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. my. Uh, uh, I think you I think you really nailed it, Jesse. I I would just push it a little further. The um, uh, the two towers that bracket the novel, mm-hmm. uh, a Moscow, who by the way I always read as a kind of bad Scottish accent, Moscow. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know he he can't climb school. He can't climb up all the way. He can't see everything. But and mm-hmm. when he's Knightsbor, he does get to see everything. So one mm-hmm. of the things that the the voyage is supposed to do is take away those masks, if you will, so he can mm-hmm. see. And what he sees is this vision of the universe, and this total vision of the universe, which is really extraordinary. Um, and that's something that uh, explains all of nature. And then that goes into Knightsmore's brain, and then he gets to go back. So this takes us back to that kind of Hindu reincarnation. You know, how much will you remember when you go back and start the whole ball rolling again? Mm-hmm. Well, he's he's going to bring back something because there's a whole Promethean element to yeah, the whole thing. That. It's right at the beginning, right? Uh, you remind me of Prometheus. <laughs> wow! And they talk about the muscle fire, which is yeah. the, the, which is the fire of the gods. How you like that? Totally. It's but, totally. But my friend, my friend Fred Kish, uh, I was talking to him about this book, and when I was. I was, I was tweeting sections from this book this week as I was listening to it because I was just so moved by the imagery. And he was, just, totally. and he was saying, oh, yeah, this book was very popular in the 1960s, which wow. dovetails with what you're saying. Because, yeah, because of the weird sex and imagery and all sorts of the, just this, the, the, the visionary stuff. Um, Don't forget, there, too, that um, the 60s is when uh, the Ballantyne Adult Fantasy series came out. Yeah. Um, and that brought this back in print. Um, and that listed a quick Googling 69 to 74. Um, and that brought this to a U.S. audience. And in fact, um, that's, co- that's uh, contemporary with the film that we saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely a 60s thing. I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that tower. I think it's, is, is it seven levels? I think it's seven levels, right? I thought it was four. It's either six or seven or something like that, or maybe five. Anyways, um, it, it's like the ladder of, uh, it made me think of the sort of the Buddhist ladder of, you know, climbing the ladder of, I don't know, 
sentience or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, because when Crag shows up, Nightspore and him, they, they go up and this is the exchange is really interesting. So, uh, here it goes. Crag and Nightspore, meanwhile, had gone on ahead with the light so that he had to compete. Uh, sorry. So he had to complete the ascent in darkness. When he was near the top, he saw a yellow light shining through the crack of the half open, half open door. His companion was standing just inside a small room, shut off from the staircase by a rough wooden planking. It was rudely furnished and contained nothing of astronomical interest. The lantern was resting on the table. Maskell walked in and looked around with curiosity. Are we on the top? Except for the platform above, over our heads, replied Craig. Why didn't the lowest window magnify as it did earlier in the evening? Oh, you missed the opportunity, said Craig, grinning. If you had finished your climb then, you would have seen heart-expanding sights. From the fifth window, for example, you would have seen Tormorant like a continent in relief. From the sixth, you would have seen it like a landscape. But now there's no need. Why not? And what has need got to do with it? And it's like, wow, this is this is like... It's like those are lives, right? Each window is a life. Or or a window or a window onto a different layer of reality on torments. But torments, torments, or torments, torments, right? So, uh, two romance is what I thought. Some people said torment and romance, but this is a scientific or quasi-scientific or fantastic romance, right? The whole story. Um, I think story is really the. It, it's like uh, why Arcturus? Wow, that's sounds it sounds cool but it's more like um what's that planet from the uh kurt uh vonnegut book um Trollfamador? yeah Trollfamador. It's, it's more like that to me right that it's all you know it doesn't really matter where it is in space it's that it's uh in your head sort of yeah Tor- tormorant is is not um, as much a planet as it is a sort of a platonic version of Earth or something? I don't know. Something weird going on. This book is really deep. Well, I got into this um, when I was a uh, uh, undergrad, and uh, I took Eric Rabkin's science fiction class, and he was mm-hmm. about um, senses and the, the limits of senses in fantasy and science fiction. And he said, you know, there are actually very few imaginative works which try and give you extra senses and he talked about Voyage Shark Tourist because you've got, you know, you throw new organs and then you get the colors. Mm-hmm. And he describes them as best he can in ways that you can't really, you know, I, I, one of the things I love about this book is, is the sheer weird of the planet that it really, mm-hmm. and, you know, there's like, the, it, it becomes unreal. It challenges the possibilities. You know, you get the, the lake that's a musical instrument. You get, uh, yep. Um, that one climb towards the end, when the two peaks are are just so enormously high, they seem to be plunging out of the um, atmosphere. And uh, um, I mean, it's it's it roll, something like Ringworld, you know, when you yeah be in place to explore. Hey, hey Jesse, remember a few months ago I was telling you about offline about. Uh, the role-playing game I was playing with that was set on Alien Planet. Mm-hmm. And then that Alien Planet, the Alien Planet named Carcosa, some of that imagery was definitely stolen from here because, as I was telling you at the time, they took the two names of the extra colors and they put them on this planet, Jail and Olfire. Because mm-hmm. at one point our characters ran into a Jail Ooze. And, yeah, we ran because the Jail Ooze was going to kick our ass. <laughs> so, yeah, this strange imagery, strange, strange fantastical land, landscapes. Weird, weird, quasi-human, quasi-alien beings, and just, just odd stuff. The voice. Of- I, I was also reminded of um, if Mr. Jim, Mr. Jim Moon was here, that would help because we did a show on uh, William Hope Hodgson novel called The Nightland. Yeah, which is it's set on Earth, but it has this, and it's from the same period too. Um, but it has that same frame where the guy, you know, he, he's reading, I don't, I don't know. There's like a, a guy from the 17th century 
And I, I can't remember if he's reading the book or writing the book that we're reading, but it's a far future and the landscape is insane and it's, it's just an amazing book. But it, this is so cool that in, you know, in 1920, they had all of the sort of, you can see it in all the other stuff from that period too. Like they don't have rockets. But they're going to the other planets, no problem, right? This one, it has a torpedo, like a crystal torpedo they climb into, which is and, pretty and, weird. And used by backlight. Right, backlight, you know, whatever that is. But it goes not at the speed of light, but the speed of of thought, right? Yeah, well, you've got to be careful, because if you use it the wrong time, it'll just blow up the observatory, right? Well, we have, guess, <laughs> That's right, he said you'd blow up the house. Right, because Arcturus is below the horizon, so you'd wind up going shooting through the Earth to get to Arcturus, and that would be bad. Yeah. Right. So it is, it is, it's quasi science, science fiction. Just like, um, you know, in the same way that, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, he gets his guy to Mars in almost the same way that these guys get to, well, to Arcturus. Yeah, but at least in this book, they've got a torpedo that has to be piloted. It's yeah, and, yeah, and they physically go there rather than it just be like kind of like a I don't, I don't know if they do physically go there. They just committed suicide essentially. Yeah. And then when he shows up on the planet, the other guys aren't there, and he's got like growths coming out of his neck and chest. I mean, I, I last time I, you know, it, it also made me think of Superman. You know how under the yellow sun he has superpowers. Um, but under the red sun, he's just a normal man, right? Yeah, at least it takes 19 hours to get there. It's really precise yeah. about that, you know. It's a very, very precise. And they said it would take 100 years at the speed of light or something like that. Uh, this is, I think this is really cool because it, it shows um, sort of the profound understanding that people were ha- beginning to have about the size of the universe you know, when you read H.P. Lovecraft, he's got the same sort of stuff going on, right? He he wants to do time travel. Well, he can't do time travel. So what does he do? He gets the shadow out of time, right? Where a being comes in and inhabits you. Um, you go change places with that being. Um, you write down everything uh, you know about your culture at that time. They observe your culture, gather that material up, and then you switch back, right? And it's like that's a really cool way to do the deep time, massive space, and yet we can't really go to these other planets because of of the limitations of physics, right? The limitations of matter. All of the names in here are so resonant. Uh, Oceax, right? I've, I saw a number of people. There's a really good website about David Lindsay and his books. Um, I think it's Violet Apple. Is what it's called. Oh yeah. Um, and there was a name description of o- Oceax there that I thought was interesting. But to me, I heard Sycorax. You know that character from The Tempest. Yeah. And she's never on stage, right? We just hear about her, but she's a witch. She's very powerful. She's the mother of Caliban. And there's this uh, Oceax. Is she's she's like a I don't know. She's an evil villainous sort of character, right? Well, she uh, she she definitely has her own agenda. And wants to use Maskell to uh, to those ends, and she she's about as much of a piece of work as her husband is. <laughs> oh, I dig this book a lot. Oh, oh, here's an interesting bit I found from the Wikipedia page. Critic Harold Bloom, in his only attempt at fiction writing, wrote a sequel to this novel entitled titled The Flight to Lucifer, but since it's owned the book and will not associate his name with the novel. Yeah, I think that is probably because he was ashamed at how crappy it was, rather than... I, I tried to look into that a little bit. and uh, Because it... The, the thing is, is that is a very... Um, he's he's sort of doing... You know, the you read Dante's Inferno and then you write your own version of it. But he, instead of reading... You know, Lindsay is not doing... Christian mythology exactly right there's not there's a few there's a guy who turns there's a tree right a guy who turns into a tree I thought that that was a bit uh sort of Christ-like or something yeah yeah I was thinking that's looking at um that it seems like the first and only fan of the book for a long time was C.S. Lewis 
Mm-hmm. He complains about its style. He likes the book, but he complains about its style. And I don't. I wonder if that was him actually complaining about the theology. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because like Lord of the Rings, this is a fantasy that has no Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. And that must have that must have galled him, you know, because that's that that was extremely important. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, it, it reminds me. I I tweeted you and you responded about uh, the other ni- World War One veteran book coming out and you know going deep on Eastern Eastern what is the the Razor's Edge by Somerset Mom. Yeah. Um, I read that book not because I wanted to, you know, because it's mainstream. It's what I thought. Um, I read it for a student was studying it, so I needed to read it, right? So I could help and, uh, you know, explain what's going on. And I was reading it. Saying, mm, I, there's elements I like about it, but it's just too, you know, slow paced. It's like a, it's like the reality, uh, you know, mainstream realism version of this book. Because it's about a guy who wants, who you know, he's he's wants to find meaning in uh, what he thinks of as you know a godless universe the, or an evil godded universe, and he sort of has these relationships and there's profound, really profound, interesting things going on in the relationships in that book, and I I think it's a very interesting book, but it just didn't have that element that I really love about SFF, which has. You know, it's like anything can happen, and we're not governed by the strict rules of realism. Well, we were talking about, uh, on Twitter, about a couple of other books, and I was thinking of um, hmm? Herman Hesse, and uh, I haven't read too much Hesse, and the, my favorite Hesse is the one that people don't talk about, which is a Glass Bead Game, because it's so completely different. Hmm. Well, yeah, I know a bunch of people talk about that. I haven't read it yet, but I hear, I hear references to that all the time, and in my circles. That seems to be the one that most SFF people glom onto, maybe because of uh, the whole mind-arching sort of uh, manipulation of reality sort of thing going on there. It's not, it's not so much manipulation of reality. I mean, there's, there's two big SF elements. I mean, one is it's a post-apocalypse novel uh, about rebuilding society after a terrible war, and it's in like uh, three centuries from now. But the other is the game. I mean, that's the... Um, you know, it's this enormous, wonderful game that I know people have been working on developing versions of uh, that lets you basically play a game with all of human knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason I, I don't hear people talking about it as much, though, well, it, it may be that it's one that you read as an adult and you take seriously, but I know a lot of people who read his shorter books, like Steppenwolf and Siddhartha, but they read them when they were younger and they don't mm-hmm. like to talk about them as much. And those were those were huge in the 60s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those are the novels about, you know, religious discovery, seeking, finding out stuff. Um, and the reason I thought of Siddhartha is because it ends with a great, fantastic vision um, of the universe. It reminds me kind of the vision that Nightspore finally gets at the end of this book. And that's, mm-hmm. a, that's the closest I would say it comes to SF. I, I haven't read most of his stuff, though, so I can't comment about his SF status. Um, but, I mean, that's... Um, Mom is, is awesome. Uh, I haven't mm-hmm. read... Edge, been meaning to. Uh, you don't think it. I, I, I mean, the thing is, is I, I am really anti-realism. You know, sort of straight, straight up books. I, I tend to hate them, but <laughs> there are so many good elements in it. Uh, you know, it's it's well constructed. The characters, you know, the the the, the suicide, you know, suicides that happen, and the the you know, putting expectations on others. It just it kind of leaves me depressed. After mm-hmm. reading it, whereas after reading this, which is full of violence, you know, extreme violence and murder and suicide, I feel uplifted. Uh, and and it's, and they're working the same sort of uh, territory. It's just that one says, "Fuck all the things that you think you know. Let's just do whatever." And and because he's wrapped it up, I mean, this is wrapped up in a very H.G. Wellian style of explanation, right? It. It, it starts with a seance, which is, I think, the the greatest joke ever, right? Is there, there <laughs> the guy attending the, the seance is the guy who gets conjured up in the seance, right? <laughs> which is <laughs> it's so hilariously funny. I mean, even in 1920, I don't think seances were uh, as hot as they had been. Right. But 
I think it, it just bridges the gap between, uh, you know, that sort of ghost story uh, that Love, uh, not Lovecraft, uh, Wells, you know, did in the Red Room style, you know, there's no ghost in the ghost story. Um, and, and the, the real sort of science fiction philosophy quest of what, what is the purpose of, of existence? And he does it in, in this wrapping of, uh, you know, oh, how did they get that? Oh, backlight. Oh, of course, right? It sounds like, you know, the anti-gravity material from... Cabarite. Yeah, Cabarite. It, it's, it's just, you know, it's just a way to get to the thing that you want. And the thing that he wants is this amazing, uh, sort of journey of life uh, that, I mean, it is r- rapidly depressing, but there's so many great lines in those opening chapters talking about, you know, art and, and then the whole rest of the journey, each chapter is like, one is about color theory. It's not, it's, it's somebody, yeah. somebody says, you know, it's a, it's an exploration of different philosophical, uh, points of view. Yeah, it's that too. But uh, honestly, there's just stuff, this is about color theory. This is about art theory, right? Um, this is a, uh, he's just exploring everything and he's not saying, uh, the, the stuff that Eric would be really interesting about, I think, is his first two, uh, visits on, on Tormorant's Joy Wind, right? We don't eat any meat and we don't eat any plants. Right? We just drink null water. Null water, and, yes. And then I'm like, well, that, that system's not going to work very well because all those animals were reproduced too much. And wait, don't the animals eat the grass? And no, right? It's <laughs> like, but then the very next chapter is not we eat meat and we love it. <laughs> wow. I love that sort of. He one of the promises that um, our hero makes is he he doesn't promise that he'll never eat a living thing, but he says uh, whenever I eat uh, an animal, I'll I'll promise to think about the living thing that I'm eat, eating. I'll, uh, I'll I'll think about what you said about it. And I thought, oh, that's really cool because it's you know people are going into vegetarianism in the in that period, right? Hitler is a vegetarian. Um, which is hilarious, right? I mean, this is something that, that, that I do ever since we start raising animals, uh, for food, uh, mm-hmm. do the same thing. And I'm, I'm much more conscious of, totally. uh, partly the work that goes into it. But, um, uh, Paul, we, we, Jesse and I were talking about this, uh, this crazy computer game that you and I've been playing. Um, yeah. It's a survivalist game. And, and so that's, that's, Influencing part of what we're talking about, but I, I want to walk back to uh, an earlier point. Can you guys explain how you see these guys as World War One veterans? Um, what's the connection for that? Yeah, I think I think he does sort of really think about World War One a lot in this, or at least the sort of the traumatic waste of human existence and the bonding of an individual to the will of a country. I think that that's all going on in the background. I mean, I might not have known that had I not known, you know, what context this book was in. But I think that it's in there. What do you think, Paul? I, I think it's I think it's implicit. Based if, if if the book is set when it was written, which is 1920, and given the ages of Maskell and Nightspore, it seems almost certain that they were veterans. Hmm. That they they had to have participated in some way just 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 because of their age. I mean, mm-hmm. we're not given that that they're too old and they're certainly not too young. So. Mm-hmm. They must have gone through that war experience, and yeah, and it makes me think of how you know the Vietnam War is kind of like that period. Why it would be so resonant in the '60s is is that that's the period when people just say, "I'm not going to do what you want." Are you crazy? Go out and kill people. Why don't we? Uh, we didn't we do that in World War One? Yeah, but you get the. Um no, I think this is a really powerful insight, you two. This is uh, because one is it explains the seance because you know, like mm-hmm. in the in the U.S. after the Civil War, um, totally, you get the big interest in spiritualism in part because of the unbelievable death toll of um, of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Well, for Europe, you know, it's it's World War One, which has this just unprecedented death toll for European history, um, and so you and you get these characters that show up in 1920s and 30s. Uh, Fiction. I mean, Mrs. Um, Mrs. Dalloway, great Virginia Woolf novel, is actually a counterpoint between 
uh, an older high society woman, the titular Mrs. Dalloway, and a World War One veteran who is racked with what they then called shell shock, uh, <laughs> named uh, Septimus, uh, and they cross paths briefly, um, and it's really rich to see how it works out. But no, I, I think this helps explain why Moscow can be so uh, unseated and and violent. Um, and violent. Why he's so, you know, why killing these people is something that he can do. Yeah, but he's not completely unsympathetic, right? Like you, you're with him uh, when it, at one point he's defending uh, Joywind or no, the other one, Oceanics. I can't remember. Oh. He's lying about who did the murder, and right. yet he's not lying, right? It, it, and she says, "No, I did it." Um, there's there's so many resonances with with. It, it it feels like you know this is a guy who who went to war didn't like what he saw and is trying and is shaken in the same way I, I think that's why it is it does pair so nicely with that 1944 uh, Somerset Mom book even though it came out in 44 the the main character is a World War One vet veteran who just can't go back to the regular society and you know marry a nice you know girl from a rich family he has to. Uh, go on his own quest. Well, we don't really see that quest, but we do see the results of 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 what war does to people. This is what happens to uh, Robert Graves, um, who is extraordinary. I mean, he has he serves for about four years in the war, which is really unusual. Um, and he uh, his first book is his autobiography. Goodbye to all that, which is. Mm. Um, a terrific book, and it ends with him saying, "Yeah, I, I have no faith in any of this. My, my, my faith in civilization is shattered. I'm taking off. Goodbye." And you know, mm -hmm. his life on the road or in Mallorca, just you know, ruined by, uh, by this experience. I mean, again, this would be interesting to compare to Tolkien, right? Who was a World War One vet, um, and then to yeah, uh, he apparently was a reader of this book. We know he read it. Yep. Um, it didn't seem to make, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis went nuts for it in a certain way, but... Uh, I can see, I mean, it's interesting to see this through the Inklings. I mean, the Tolkien is such a, a his work, his fiction is so textual. I mean, almost all of his novels are, are so clearly working with all these um, medieval um, uh, texts. You know, he's working with the, uh, the Eddas and... Uh, he's working with Calavela. I mean, he's really drawing on the long tradition of European uh, folklore and fantasy. But Lewis is a lot more projective. Mm -hmm. and apparently, this tied into his uh, space trilogy. Mm -hmm. uh, although I see a lot of Narnia in it too. Uh, I mean, yeah. Narnia is the you know they go through a wardrobe instead of uh, backlight. A backlight. Uh, it's a more, much more straight up fantasy version. Uh, uh, yeah. thing. But it's a secondary world in the same way that ours is, and yet it has, you know, that lamppost as soon I, as they go through. Yeah, I, I want to unpack this for a second because, in a sense, that the war experience with the war experience, we have we have Lindsay and Lewis kind of looking forward in some ways, and we have Tolkien looking back. Both, all three of them, looking for ways to basically deal with their experience in the war and, and putting it on the page. I mean, Tolkien's t back forming these myths and coming up with the similarity. And I remember it was originally supposed to be the original history of Earth. So he's kind of like almost looking backwards before the war to a better time and when things and watching it diminish, which kind of like the war diminished European civilization. And we have Lewis looking to the side and, to God and Narnia, and also looking forward into the plants, and we have Lindsay looking, trying to look outside all of it by going forward to Arcturus and trying to escape the whole Gnostic system. Yeah, it's also, I mean, I think it's 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 like uh, suicide ain't that bad of a solution. There's so much suicide in this book. Um, it, it isn't. It doesn't shy. It doesn't shy away from anything that, like, yeah. There's the homoerotic stuff going on. There's the uh, tr tons of transgender. Remember, we did that uh, what, that quote unquote new uh, exciting science fiction book uh, by Anne Leckie, right? About ooh, it has a it has a non gendered pronoun. Ooh, 
Uh, guess what? This 1920 book had that way. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I made my like, hey, look at this. It's Shades of Le Guin and, and Lecky right here in 1920. Yeah, I mean, it, it has this book has everything, right? It it has there's this is such an appropriate book for today because of you know the third sex and the he changes genders, right? They swap genders. He eats her, she eats him, or whatever. And they, they, they change genders completely, swap over. And, and, and this is like, wow, this, this guy doesn't, isn't afraid of anything. No. And, and that is probably why it wasn't such a big success. It was just way too, I mean, I, I can't imagine this book ever making the mainstream. Like if you made a movie of this, a, oh, they a real totally movie. screw it up. A, a real movie, not even that little. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that that movie was probably the best you could ever expect because probably get a, get a Michael Bay production instead, right? <laughs> oh god, oh, no, no, that's hurting my brain. Oscar, Michael, in a world he never made. Yeah, well, uh, I think I think they also did a cool thing uh, in that movie version. Just like um, there's a really cool. Um, adaptation of The Color Out of Space called De Farba. It's a German version of The Color Out of Space. Um, that's in black and white, and they, they do the color, right? They bring the color in. And in this, also, uh, in the, the revised uh, 1971 adaptation, uh, when they, they put it out on DVD-R, I noticed that. <laughs> it wasn't just DVD, it was DVD-R, right? <laughs> because they made it at home. Yeah. Um, when they did it, they uh, they color toned the two. Uh, I guess uh, it, it starts black and white, and then it goes jail or something, right? And then it goes all fire. Yeah, and we we see those two different. Uh, it's just like a duotone sort of uh, look to yeah. it. And I like and that. All, and that that's the other. It's very cool. And the other thing that's cool is is that the the um the color changes happens as they go north right in the story they're always traveling north right um and also of course that if you go back and remember the original couple of chapters which I'm really into um the first four or five chapters that's their journey they go north right the the two uh, nightspore and um maskell get on a train and go to scotland <laughs> they go to the very tip of Scotland to a observatory that doesn't really exist. Well, that, that, that brings me back a little bit to Buchan, you know, where uh, you know, totally you go from the, Emp the Imperial Metropole, London, and they quickly go to the wilds of Scotland so Buchan can be more relaxed, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, back is, this also reminds me of um, of a contemporary, which is the great Olaf Stapledon. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, in both Last and First Men and in um, uh, the Star Maker, you get the, the cosmos. And as, as you said, it's, it's in that scale, you know, of, of immensity, um, especially Star Maker, which is the universe, where the universe becomes a character at the end, right? Um, but also the, the science, it, it's, you know, you get science as an object to play with, but it's not mm -hmm. always accurate. And he'll just skip things. So, you know, we get... You know, he tries really hard in, in Last and First Men to do the different planets, to do the biological developments, but then he just makes stuff up. You know, we, we're doing this through telepathy, a combination of telepathy and time travel, or, you know, we have Martian energy beings who go to the mountains, you know, and, and, this, and the, the, star, the, the star maker is like Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, he just looks out at the stars and up he goes. You know, it's a, but you get, you get that gives you the opportunity not only to play with science and what's known of science at the time, but also to bring in all these massive issues of being humanity. I mean, you well, know, the end of the star maker. Yeah. That's a that's an ethical call to people, much like the one that Nightspore discovers in the struggle with Crystal Man at the end of uh, of this book. It's extraordinary. There's nothing quite like it today in fiction. Oh, nothing. I just I love seeing how that that period of time. Uh, you read Lovecraft, and he has a he has a, in Hypnos he has characters astrally projecting themselves to the stars. Right. 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 They they go out to the stars, um, discover something horrible, right? That chases them back to the earth. But this is how everybody was getting to the stars back then. You, you know, the only thing that Wells could do 
was, uh, you know, okay, we, we go to the moon. We go to the moon. But he doesn't go anywhere else, right? He never goes beyond the Earth. We see, we Earth? see, uh, Mars. the Martians. We see the Martians on Mars and in, uh, one story, the Crystal Egg, right? We, we know that the Martians come to Earth, but he's working with the limited, you know, physics that he knows as possible. Well, that's, and you know, these guys, they want to go out to the universe in the way that, you know, all the yeah. space operas do today, you know, yeah. Star Trek, uh, etc. We can't do that. We have no way of doing that, but we want to so much. And they, they did it even before, you know, practically Goddard would make his first rocket, right? Yeah, Tsiolkovsky is uh, drawing the designs for the first space station, and, and Goddard's trying to figure out how to get into orbit. Yeah, in his backyard. I guess this is this is so cool science fiction. I love it. These guys remind me a bit more of um, Star Wars. Now, I don't mean that as a as a compliment to Star Wars. I mean that um, the science in Star Wars is so spastic. You know, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll just have a ship and then not. You know, but um, it's oh, it, it, not just not just the the I uh, what's the gr- little green things the corpuscles? I was thinking. The, the midichlorians. Midichlorians. Oh, totally, oh, right? No. He said, oh, you ruined some it. People, oh, some no. people have more of them than others. Oh. And I'm like thinking, maybe George Lucas isn't as stupid oh, as stop, I thought Jesse, he was. Stop, you ruined it for me. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> oh, man. So this is- you brought up Star Wars, bud. Yeah. George Lucas does the film, and we get Jar Jar Binks and Torments. Oh, man. No, oh, God, I- that hurts. Well, oh, man. There's a... What you were comparing this to to Wells, and and by implication, I was comparing it to Verne, uh, mm-hmm. that you know who are very practical. You know, they are the very mechanistic. Okay, well, what if we can have a combination airplane slash submarine? How would it work? There's mm-hmm. um, there's a a couple of writers who write together under a pseudonym today, and they've pumped out a series of um, space adventures. Um, you guys recognize these titles like Abaddon's Gate. Um, oh, oh yeah, James S. A. Corey. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank. Right, right, right. And and I remember one of the uh, one of the conceits of the, of that of their work is the uh, an artificial constraint that they're only going to do what they know now to be possible in science and engineering. So there's no warp drive. You know, people get from uh, you know there's no uh, quantum computing. There's only, um, you know, relativity is an iron law, and so when people go between planets, it takes a long time. Uh, you know, everyone needs oxygen, right? You don't, you don't have any um, human mutation or anything. Um, and it's interesting, just thinking about that, that there, there's an echo there of, of Verne and Wells. Mm-hmm. You know, very, very strict, uh, as strict as you can get in science fiction. It's not just hard science fiction, it's... Um, it's, I think it was like engineering science fiction. But, but yeah, there's a special word for it from a couple of years ago. I can't remember what they they called it, but um, it was yeah, like let's make the rules of science fiction uh, be what was it mundane? No, yeah, I can't. Remember. No, no, but mundane is really just earth based, so that wasn't even quite yeah. either. I mean, but but even even with those strict rules, I mean, they start they started breaking that open by the time you reach Abaddon's gate, and you have start you get gates to other. Solar systems. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I, not I, not uh, so. Hand wavium is what causes and, that. Yeah. But but no, Jesse, you, you got it. Uh, Wikipedia has mundane science fiction uh, subgenre characterized by setting on Earth or within the solar system a lack of interstellar travel or contact with the aliens. They say that this term came out of 2002 Clarion. Mm-hmm. And. Well, I, I think, you know, I don't like uh, SF that doesn't have laws, because then it's not... That's fantasy. Then it's not, well, but see, even fantasy has laws. Then it's not readable, is what I would say. <laughs> uh, see, I, what, what's so cool about this book is there are laws at work. We just don't understand what they are, because he is not doing... Uh, so, uh, when I, when I first visited Tormorants, I'm like, this is bullshit. <laughs> this is total bullshit. You can't have an, a, uh, you know, like a, like, first of all, nobody has any jobs. <laughs> They're all jobless. Right? They don't, nobody's employed anywhere. They can't gather any food. Uh, the animals, you know, they're just pretty colors. This is bullshit. And then, the next 
instance, the next chapter, has a reversal of that. Yeah. And I say, okay, I see what he's doing. He is not doing uh, planetary romance, but, you know, the normal thing. He's doing some sort of, this is uh, dream, uh, this is more like H.P. Lovecraft's The Dreamlands than it is. Yes. And, 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 and when that is the rule in operation, dream logic applies. So he know he has rules. He's applying them. Uh, we are just not. So, they're dream rules, which are anything goes. This rem- this reminds me a bit of uh, the experience of reading Gene Wolfe, because Wolfe is such an incredibly precise stylist that you know every single word counts. You know, it, mm-hmm. um, that's why he's such a master of short stories. Um, but also, there's that sense of ominous significance that you don't know quite what is going on in this one scene, but something is operating just below the surface of great, not just mythic power, but, but also personal power. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, I, I've, I've often compared reading the best wolf to, like, operating a computer when a software upgrade is in process. You know, there's, there's so, something happening right around you, and it's, and it's, not, it's not cuddly, um, but it's, it's powerful, and you're going to have to deal mm-hmm. with it at some point. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.